Good morning. We are uh, continuing our sermon series, walking through the, the first 15 chapters of Exodus, and we're finishing up chapter 4 this morning. And this passage that we are at is a transition passage. So last week we saw the final interaction between God and Moses at the burning bush. And there we saw Moses question God's choice of him as a leader for the fifth time. And as Todd showed us last week, God provided a helper for him uh, in his mission to rescue the Israelites from slavery. And after this final interaction, uh, it's kind of like go time for Moses, right? He leaves the burning bush. He has a decision to make. Will he obey God's calling or will he just go back to his life and go to the fields? Will he do as God called him to do and go to the leaders of Israel, rally them together and go rescue Israel? Well, this passage shows us that he answers, and he responds correctly. He responds with obedience, and we're going to see this morning that we're called to respond the same way. So our oldest, Lila, uh, is uh, turning four in January, which is crazy. Um, the toddler years have been uh, up and down, I'd say. Um, three has been a lot better than two, but two, I feel like, started for us at 18 months. And I actually remember the exact moment that Lila flipped her little toddler switch, where she started to flex some of her own kind of rebelliousness and her own desires. Um, it was one night at dinner that the incident happened. So up until this point, Lila had been really, really good at like baby signs and stuff. We did all the, like, the signs and those things. We didn't do those with Jack because whatever. But, you know, with Lila, we were still like, we were all on it. And so she knew all done, which is like when you're done with your food, all done. She knew, please, you run your hand across your your chest, and you say, please. And so every night when Lila was eating dinner, when she was done, she would say, you know, down, or she would say, all done. And we would say, you know, if she didn't say all done, we'd ask her to, Lila, are you all done? Yes, all done. Uh, Would you like to get down? Yes, please. And she would say, please. Well, one night she finishes her dinner, and she says, down. And I said, okay, are you all done? And she said, down. And I said, Lila, say all done. And she said, no. And I said, Lila, say please. And she said, no. (laughs) I mean, she's 18 months and looking me square in the face and saying no. And I was kind of taken back a little bit. um, And I was like, well, Lila, you're not getting out of your high chair until you say all done or please. And she just said, no, down. And I was like, okay. And so I left the room. And I was like, you know, it's like a, a parent... I learned this. You pick and choose your battles. Well, we were kind of in this one already, so it was kind of picked and chosen for me. And so, you know, we were, I come back five minutes later, and I said, Lila, are you all done with dinner? She said, down. And I said, say all done or please. She said, no. She sat there another 10 minutes. Checked again. Nope. 15 minutes. Nope. 25 minutes. Nope. 40 minutes. Nope. I finally come back in there. And she's crying at this point, and I feel like a jerk, but again, like, she can't win. She's the kid. I'm the parent. And she's crying, and I'm like, Lila, you have to say all done or please, and then I promise you we can go to bed. Because it's like 20 minutes past bedtime. It's getting ridiculous at this point. And she, in tears, just says, please, you know, and says, please. I get her out, and I, and I get her down. I'm so still shocked by this interaction because she was only 18 months and she was already, I mean, it just shows how willful that girl is. She is 
so willful that she would say no to me for 45 straight minutes rather than get out of her high chair at 18 months, which is just nuts. Um, But it reminds me a bit of Moses, right? Moses who met God at the burning bush. Moses who God revealed to his name, his identity, the most intimate thing about him. Moses who God gave signs to to, to, to power and to legitimize him. Moses, who God even provided a helper to come alongside him in his perceived weakness of himself, kept questioning and questioning God over and over and over about his ability to lead and rescue Israel. And we come to this place, and finally, it's like, will he finally respond obediently? Will he finally respond obediently? It reminded me a little bit of Lila in that high chair refusing to obey, right? Being a little dramatic, holding out as long as possible until finally the 45 minutes passed. Please just let me down. This passage we just read is about obedience. The first few passages presage Pharaoh's lack of obedience to God, which we see come to fruition in chapter 5 when he refuses Moses and Aaron's request to let Israel go worship in the wilderness. We see God both foreknow and foreordain, foreordain his refusal to obey. In the middle few verses, we see Moses fail to obey God's covenant and the stipulations that um, come with it, and it almost results in his death. Finally, we see the leaders of Israel actually do obey God and his chosen leader, and it leads them to worship. So obedience, or lack thereof, is all through this passage. In the same way, God has called all of you to something this morning. A reoccurring theme throughout all of Scripture is that God calls his people to be about his purposes. Our work, our vocations, our role as parents, siblings, child, spouse, friends, our our areas of influence, the places that we are in leadership over, these are all part of God's calling on our lives to be kingdom-minded. This kingdom of God that will bring peace and shalom, flourishing, goodness, truth, and grace, he has called all of us to be agents of that kingdom. So the question is, how will we respond? And this passage shows us that the correct response is obedience, first and foremost, to that calling and to the will and way of God in every aspect of our lives. And yet, we're like Moses, right? Or, you know, if I'm being honest, and this is probably where she gets it from, we're more like the toddler in the high chair, right? We refuse to obey. We look at our work as a means to an end to get as much money as possible or to ensure a safe future for our kids or to do a college fund or a counseling fund for my kids or to be able to go on vacation rather than a means to bring about God's kingdom or his purposes in our work. We look at our relationships with people as means to gain something from them, whether it's to feel better about ourselves or status or popularity or to feel good rather than to see our relationships as ways to serve care and bring about God's purposes in in their lives. We see our hobbies and areas of influences as places of escape, places that we can get a serotonin hit or rush, rather than places where we can be salt and light to God's kingdom. We are a stiff-necked, obstinate people refusing to obey God because we don't want to submit. You know, when we talk about Genesis 3, often we call it the fall, right? And in a sense, we did fall with Adam, right, in his sin. But I think a better way to describe it is rebellion, right? Adam rebelled against God's will and way. And yes, we fell with him, but if we were in that same place, we would have rebelled in the same way. The way to look at Genesis 3 is more of a rebellion than a fall. 
And when we respond to God in rebellion, it always ends in disaster for us. Because we were made to walk in obedience. We were created to submit to him. And when we do, when we do submit to his will and his way, we do find peace. We do find fulfillment. It's in losing ourselves that we find God. It's in submission that we find freedom. And it's in obedience that we find purpose. So this morning, we're going to walk through this odd passage. It's very odd, and we're going to see that in a second. And we're going to see how obedience is the correct response to God's calling. And we're going to see this in three ways. So first, godly obedience flows out of adoption. Godly obedience is a covenant obligation. And finally, it always leads to worship. Godly obedience always leads to worship. So one, flows out of adoption. Two, a covenant obligation. Three, always leads to worship. So it flows out of adoption. So there's something incredibly striking about this passage. This transition passage has some very weird interpretive issues that we're going to get to. But it's this. God claims Israel as his own in this passage in a way that he never has before. God doesn't claim Israel as his chosen people. We've seen that. In this passage, for the first time, we see God call Israel his firstborn son. This is shocking, and we're going to see why in a sec. We're going to back up a bit before we do, though. We have to get through those interpretive issues. Verse 18 says that Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and asked him to let him go back to his brothers in Egypt and see if they're still alive. So we see Moses respond correctly to God. And he says, I'm going to go tell my father-in-law that I'm going to go rescue my people or see how they're doing. And this phrase, see if they're still alive, um, could have been a phrase that was used colloquial in that time about just checking in on the well-being of a person, not literally seeing if they're alive or dead. Uh, but it could also mean that though Moses is responding obediently, he's still a little gun-shy, right? He's a little gun-shy about whether or not he believes that God is who he says he is and whether his people have even survived the past 40 years of abuse and oppression in ex- uh, by Pharaoh while Moses was in exile. So Moses goes back, gets the blessing from his father-in-law, packs up his family, his wife, and his kids, and they start to head back to Israel. In verse 21 to uh, 23, things get really interesting. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. These verses are interesting. They've actually served as uh, debates for centuries Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did he do that purposely? If God willfully hardened Pharaoh's heart, doesn't that mean he made Israel's suffering continue or worsen? And if he could have hardened it, why didn't he just soften it and force them to let Pharaoh relent and let them go without bloodshed and suffering and all the things that come? This is the great mystery that we see all the time in the Bible of God's sovereignty and human free will. Yes, God could have softened Pharaoh's heart. Yes, God could have ended the suffering of Israel even quicker. But Pharaoh was evil. He committed grave sins against God's beloved, God's own son. And by furthering the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God was simply allowing Pharaoh's sin and his evil to run their course. Yes, it spelled disaster for Pharaoh and his people and even Israel as collateral damage. But God allowed the consequences of his evil and his sin go their logical end. And this is a good reminder for us. Sin has real and true consequences, both to those who commit the sin and also those who are in collateral damage of the sin. 
And then there's this most important part of this passage. God tells Moses in, in 22, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve you. If you, let, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God claims Israel to be his children. And not just his children, but his firstborn the firstborn son in the ancient Near East was an important uh, status. It, it had claim to all that the father and its family possessed. And as soon as their father died, the firstborn came into possession of all of it as the head of the household. So firstborn sons were given the inheritance of their family. This is a special and privileged position in the family. And God was claiming that Israel, his people, were in that position of privilege. They were heirs to his possessions, his kingdom. They were the ones that got the privilege of, of the inheritance of God himself. He adopted them as his sons and daughters. And this really changes the way that we view this whole story. The Exodus wasn't an exchange of possessions from two strong parties, right? Pharaoh is a strong party, God is a strong party, and uh, God is claiming something that was Pharaoh's, or even reclaiming a possession of Pharaoh's. No, that's not what this story is about. It's not just a rescue of a poor and oppressed people from slavery. This wasn't a God lashing out against an earthly power to take away his labor. This is a father who wants to rescue his son. The Exodus is a story about repatriation more than it's a story of liberation. This is a subtle, if not extremely important, framework shift in the way we view this story. What Pharaoh saw as property, God saw as family. What, what Pharaoh abused, God loved. What Pharaoh oppressed, God freed. And the point of this rescue was not freedom in and of itself. It was to bring a son home to a father. This story is not the great links that God will go to deliver oppressed people. It's a story about how great the father's love is for his son. This is why this is important, and I'm going to be as brief as I can about this. I actually talked to my wife about this a little bit, and she was like, you need to cut out like 800 words of this. Get it down to two sentences. So I think I got it down to four, so I'm going to try this. There's a theology that was popular in the 80s that is still influential today. It's called liberation theology. It's influential today because it, uh, liberation theology has its roots in critical theory, which has been popularized recently. It's a way of viewing power structures, those in power and those in positions of weakness. Those in positions of power are always corrupt and oppressive. Those in weaker positions are always correct and in need of freedom. And often the Exodus is used as an apologetic for this, citing that God liberated and rescued his people because they were oppressed. But God doesn't rescue his people just because they were oppressed. The point of saving Israel from Pharaoh was not just to free them. It was to reunite them with their good and loving father. God and no one else is the father of Israel, and he will share his children with no one. He's nothing if not a jealous God, right? The Old Testament tells us that all the time. So to speak of this subtle and paradoxical theology as liberation only is to miss the paradox that is the heart of the Exodus. Israel's liberation from bondage is so that they could come back to submit to God. He saves them, but he fathers them. He shepherds them. He stays with them. He cares for them. 
He disciplines them. He teaches them. He shows them how to live, how to interact with the world, how to promote flourishing and goodness and truth. The Exodus is not a road out of Egypt. It's also a road to Mount Sinai. Our God is relentless, and that was, right? That was like a paragraph, right? Our God is relentless in his pursuit of his children. That includes me, and it includes you. This is what this story tells us. God has claimed us as his own beloved children. We are heirs to those promises. This is what this means for you. God doesn't want to and didn't just save you from your sins. The salvation of Jesus Christ was not just to give you eternal life or to save you from the penalty of your sin. It was to reclaim you as a son and as a daughter. This morning, we all have the benefits that come from being a son or daughter of the Most High God. He promises to be with each of us this morning. He promises to shepherd you this morning. He promises to listen to you this morning, to care for you in your anxiety and in your stress He loves you like a father loves their children. And this, I don't feel like we say this enough. He likes you, right? He actually wants to be in relationship with you. Ever since I've had kids, and um, I know this is a shocker, I guess. Uh, It's changed the way that I view father and children relationships, right? I I realized as I began to look at the world that I want to do absolutely everything I can to help my children to be healthy, functioning people, to be, feel loved and cared for, to help them grow into humans who want to promote godly flourishing and grace in the world. And though I'm learning and I'm doing it on the fly, I have no idea what I'm doing, um, I'm trying, right? Imagine how much more our perfect, holy, and mighty God of the universe, our Father, wants that for you. This is why we live lives of obedience. This is why there's grace for us. This is why we align our lives to the will and way of Jesus. It's because we're holy and beloved, the sons and daughters. We don't live obediently to gain that status. We already have it. Obedience flows out of that. This is grace. That even in our frailty, our brokenness, our feeble attempts at serving God, he still calls us sons and daughters. Obedience is a familial issue, not a transactional one. Obedience is a familial issue, not a transactional one. If you're struggling this morning to follow the will and way of God, you may actually be struggling with accepting your status as son or daughter. And that might be something to think through this week. And it brings us to our second point. So we've seen that we must respond to God's calling with obedience. And that flows out of adoption. Now we're going to see that it's a covenant obligation. So one thing um, I, I don't want you to hear this morning is that, yes, obedience flows out of adoption. It does. But it's still an obligation for us as God's people. It's not something we strive for. It's not something we try to be good at or hope for. Obedience to God and his will and his way, it's a lived-in reality for us. It's serious business for us as God's people. So serious, in fact, that to Moses, it was a life-or-death situation. It brings us to this, honestly, one of the most perplexing and confusing verses that we've come across this far in Exodus. I'm going to read it to you, and we'll try to parse it out. Verse 24 says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought 
to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. And it was then she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So for almost two chapters, we saw God and Moses interact. We saw all these things that God did for Moses. He called him to his purposes. We saw God reveal himself to Moses. He claims Moses and all of Israel as his firstborn son. All of these like beautiful, wonderful, wonderful things. And then God meets him and is like, I'm going to kill you. What is happening here? Genesis 17 says this. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So when God made his covenant with his people, the sign was circumcision. The mark of the covenant, the thing that God said to differentiate you, Israel, is circumcision. And in Egypt, Israelites were only able to practice their religion in part, right? They lost parts of their religion because they were in slavery to a different person. So probably circumcision was one of those aspects of religious life and practice that they lost. And there's something symbolic about them losing this sign too, right? It kind of showed that while they were in Egypt, they were under Pharaoh's control. Pharaoh claimed Israel for his own And in doing so, they lost the sign that was emblematic of God's claim over them. And God said, that time is over. I'm going to reclaim my people. And if Moses was going to take leadership over Israel, and if God was going to reclaim his beloved son, his stipulations, the stipulations of the covenant he made with Abraham were to be reinstituted. So how could Moses, as God's chosen leader, to rescue God's firstborn sons and daughters, how is he going to lead those people out of slavery if he wasn't even going to follow the stipulations of the covenant himself? So God met him at a lodge, and because he hadn't obeyed, he was going to be killed. Obedience is an obligation, not a suggestion for God's children. So we see Moses' wife, as we've seen so many, go back through these first four chapters. We probably haven't highlighted this enough. So many times a woman has stepped up and intervened in affairs and righting potential wrongs of men. And they've done it over and over again, and this is the most recent time. And she steps in, she remembers this covenant that God made with Abraham. She circumcises their son, and even Moses as well, potentially, though Hebrews unclear. And this shedding of blood satisfied the covenant stipulations, and it turned the wrath of God aside. This is important for us. I think for a long time, um, the evangelical church was known for its legalism. I think many corners of evangelicalism is still there. Obedience to God in a legalistic culture is a measuring stick. And then that measuring stick often turns to a bludgeon, right, to hit one another with or to test how um, much, uh, how holy one is or how um, much fidelity to God they have. And this is why the necessary correction from earlier that I mentioned, the adoption piece, is so important. Because obedience always flows out of adoption, not the other way around. We lead with grace of Jesus Christ first and not obedience. But the truth is this. I don't think Hope Chapel struggles with legalism. 
I really don't. And as someone who grew up in a legalistic culture, I'm very thankful for that in a lot of ways. But I do worry sometimes that we go the opposite way, right? I worry that we only focus on our adoption as God's children and let grace cover our disobedience. But it's stories like these that remind us that obedience to God and his will is not an option. It's not something that we just skirt over and focus on the grace of God. Obedience to God's will and way is a lived-in reality. Yes, grace covers us. Yes, we obey because we have his favor. But the more we embrace the grace and love of God, the more we will be obedient to his will and way. And the applications here are endless for us. Is the frequency and amount of alcohol you drink on a regular basis done in obedience to God's will and way? What about your speech, the way you talk to your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Is it obedient to God's will and way? What about your sexual ethic? Those of you dating or single, is your sexual ethic in line with the will and way of God? What about your finances? When you think about the way you spend your money, do you think about God's purposes and how he has called you to steward your finances? What about the way you parent your kids? Do you submit obediently to God and his will and his way? His truth and his law and the way you shepherd your children and the way you speak to them, the way you discipline them. What about your roommates? What about your teachers? Here's what happens. When we submit to God obediently, it's when we're salt and light. It's when we live in obedience to the will and way of God that his kingdom is furthered and the world will notice will we be rejected of course will we still be looked at as backwards and outdated of course but living in accordance to the way of god always brings flourishing whether the world accepts it or not obedience to god as his children far surpasses obedience to man any day of the week both for our hearts but also the world And this brings us to our third point. Obedience leads to worship, and we don't have time to get into it, and so we're not. I'm almost out of time as it is. So um, Moses and Aaron meet up, and verse 29 says they went and they gathered all the elders, and, and Aaron spoke all the words that, words that God had given to Moses, and he did the signs that God had given him. And 31 says that the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Moses, who was so scared that the people of Israel would reject him, wouldn't believe him, was accepted almost immediately. And when they heard that the God of the universe had not forsaken them, that he had been true to his covenant with them, that he was with them, that he saw their brokenness, they responded. And they responded in worship. Right response to God, obedient response to God, is always worship in every aspect of our lives. Obedience is not a burden, it's a gift. God doesn't want to withhold things from you. He wants to give you himself and all the fullness that comes with that. So the more that we receive of him, the more our affection grows of him. Obedience leads to worship. Align your heart and your will with God's will, and your life will be one of worship. Obedience flows out of adoption. It's a stipulation of the covenant. And it always leads to worship. 
in all of life. I'll never forget obstinate little rebellious Lila sitting in that high chair, refusing to get up, flexing her rebellious spirit really for the first time. And um, I know that rebelliousness will only get worse. It will change in subtle ways. And she gets into elementary school and, and Lord knows what middle school and high school will be like. Pray for me. Um, but one thing my mom always tells me is that you never stop being a parent. Obedience to your parents in adulthood is, is different than as a child, right? It looks a lot more like honoring than it does obeying. But honoring my parents definitely looks different today than it, does 30, than it did 30 years ago, but it's still my call. And in 30 years, it will still be Lila's call. And it's still our response to our good and loving father who's claimed us as his own. And as we close, I want to bring something to your attention from earlier. There's a reason Israel is called God's son. There's a reason Israel is called to obedience. There's a reason you and I are claimed as God's firstborn. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was turned away from us of our rebellion because of the obedient response of God's firstborn son to fulfill the covenant. Jesus responded obediently to the call of the Father. Jesus willingly came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died so that we could be saved. His blood was poured out to turn away the wrath of God. Just like the blood of circumcision that was touched on Moses' foot turned away the wrath of God, so too the blood of Jesus poured out on the earth for me and you turned away his wrath. God was willing to sacrifice his literal firstborn son for the sake of his adopted sons and daughters. He gave up his most precious possession to save me and to save you. Jesus' obedience, even to the point of death, was life for us. The blood of Jesus is our lifeblood. Don't you see? This is the framework that we must see obedience through. It's to a God who gave up everything to gain me and to gain you, and to pay for the sins of the world. Let that sacrifice, let that life, let that death, let that blood poured out, let that resurrection be what guides our worship this morning, this week, and for years to come. Amen.